All right, um, <clears throat> so hopefully uh, you've got your Bible. If you don't, you can open your app to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be continuing on uh, Luke 19, verses uh, 41 through 48. One of, my, one of the things my family enjoys uh, doing together, sort of a hobby, is actually um, uh, going to movies together. We, it doesn't always have to be going to the movies. We can watch movies at home as well. Uh, it was something that as my kids reached a certain age, we began to realize, um, you know, obviously when they're, when they're a certain age, you can't go to see a lot of movies. <laughs> There's very few movies you can take your small children to. But as our kids became teenagers, uh, we, we found that we really enjoyed uh, watching movies. And one, one of the uh, first, I think, little... Um, series that we enjoyed watching was the, the Sherlock Holmes movies with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and it, it was one of the cool things about that movie, the, those movies that struck with me, uh, struck me was uh, the way they used slowed down cinematography. There were points in the movie where uh, they would just slow it down to like one-tenth uh, of the normal speed, and it allowed you to take in a scene. I remember in the uh, movie, which one? Game of Shadows. I couldn't remember which one it was, but the Game of Shadows. There's a scene where uh, Sherlock Holmes is running through the woods uh, with Watson and some of their associates, and they're being fired upon uh, by by the enemy, and and. Uh, they slowed down the whole scene so the bullets like hit the tree and like explode and they show that like their facial expressions and how they're responding and all this stuff. And it's just fascinating to watch that because you can see so much more detail than if it was at full speed, right? Um, now that's, a, that's something you use only partially because if an entire movie was shot like that, it would be the most boring movie ever. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it, it's great for moments. And this is exactly what actually happens in the gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the Gospels are flowing along pretty quickly. Jesus has three-year public ministry, and they dedicate about 50% of their material in each of those Gospels is dedicated to 97% of Jesus's time in ministry, public ministry, uh, over those three years. But then it hits Palm Sunday, and the rest of those Gospels is dedicated to that one week of events. And it digs into, you can actually build a, a structure for that week and what actually happens each day. So we slow, each of them are slowing down so that we'll take it in. We'll, we'll see what's happening. We'll make sure we catch every nuance um, of these moments. And that's what we're really focusing on through this series is uh, it's called The Road to Redemption. Uh, we looked at last week, uh, the, the events of Palm Sunday. Now, I know you're like, isn't today Palm Sunday? I know. We just wanted to confuse everyone. Um, so <laughs> we talked about Palm Sunday a week before Palm Sunday, and then we aren't talking about Palm Sunday today. So, uh, but what we wanted to do was focus on that last week and the road to redemption of leading up to the cross. So uh, what was last week was Jesus coming into the city. The clothes were being uh, laid on the road. Palm branches were being laid on the road. He came in on a colt. We talked about how that symbolized him coming in as a king, right? Uh, the, a king that was not expected, but the king that we ultimately needed. Today, we pick up on the, the events following this, literally the next verse. Um, we looked at all the way up to verse 40 last week. We're picking up in verse 41. Most scholars believe this is actually Monday now. So this is, uh, he would stay with his friends, uh, Lazarus, Mary and Martha in Bethany, which was just outside of Jerusalem, walking distance. And he would stay with them and then come into the city and do ministry. And so he came into the city and that's where we're picking up today. But what I want us to see is such a unique glimpse for such a short passage, literally just uh, nine verses, 41 to 48, 
we're reading and we're seeing um, something really staggering ab- uh, about Jesus. We see a range of emotions um, that we don't see, I think, in any other short passage in all of the Gospels. So let's look at the range of emotions we see here and see um, this king that's both compassionate but also just. When I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond with me by saying, thanks be to God. All right, Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, <clears throat> my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of the things we see in this slowed down passage, right, this slowed down uh, part of the Gospels is some of the emotional experience of Jesus on in his last Day and it's it's on full dis, uh, display for us. One of the interesting things about uh, about Jesus' uh, emotional state is it's very human, and that's on purpose. I believe that God intended to include some of these examples of Jesus feeling things uh, to give legitimacy both to his humanity, but also to feeling things. Some of you don't like to feel things, <laughs> unless it's happiness, right? Um, and these other emotions can drive you crazy, and we shy away from them sometimes. But what we see is that they are appropriate and healthy here. So we're going to see uh, Jesus is first saddened, and then Jesus is angered. So let's look at the first point, that Jesus is saddened, and he's saddened by our sin and hardness of heart. Verse 41 is so easy to just plow through. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. Like imagine what that must have been like to see Jesus, God in human form, weep over a city. He was sad. He was profoundly sad over this city. You know, sometimes in Christian circles, sadness is frowned upon. After all, God is good all the time. God is good. That's right. So, like, there's this idea, well, if God's good all the time, then we ought to be good too. Meaning everything's wonderful, right? Everything is awesome. I won't sing that. <laughs> but, but seriously, like, there are circles that re- the church will almost shame you if, if you're down, if you're walking in if, uh, even if you're experiencing like depression, some churches will almost shame you. You don't have enough faith. You're, you, know, you, you need more faith. But Jesus is sad, meaning there are times, there are things that are genuinely sad. And it's okay to be sad. Now, some of you that are more melancholic are like, amen, brother, right? You're just like so excited. This Sunday's about me. It's for me. Okay, yes, yeah, sad is appropriate. Maybe not sad all the time. Um, <laughs> 
There, you know, there's a range of emotions here, um, but Jesus is sad, and I want to say that. Sometimes, like, in, even in our church, as, as authentic as I think we try to be, I, th- I don't think it's a, always a great, safe place to be sad and, and to admit that, though I think we should be. But we see Jesus weep. What's he weeping over? Well, in all my years in ministry, I have seen people weep. I, I, couldn't, even, I couldn't even count how many times I have seen people weep. Um, like grown, grown men and women who are otherwise strong and just broken. Um, and I've seen people weep over loss. Um, I, I've seen people weep over, over a broken marriage. Um, but there is a special kind of weeping that happens from parents over their children. You see, when a, when a child gets to a point where they, they turn their back on their family, they, they uh, disown their family, they disown the church, they go into rebellion, they go away from God, they go away from all that they have learned and been taught. Um, there's a brokenness experienced by the pa- parent. There's a, there's a weeping that happens, a sadness that's profound. And it's profound for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, the child actually will often say, no, this is good. This is good for me. This is going to lead hum- to flourishing and to fullness of life. And so seeing your child say that and knowing you can't, that, that there's no convincing them. They have decided that that is their good. And then at the same time as a parent, knowing from life and experience and God's word that that path will only lead to pain, will only lead to hurt and even destruction. And so as a parent, you grieve. You grieve because your child is literally choosing to go away from uh, flourishing life. And I believe this is very similar to what Jesus felt here. Jesus wept over the ignorance of, of the city, the ignorance of God's people, the ignorance that they had of him and his ways. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't have uh, religion. They, the temple was a very active place. They had all the rituals. They followed the rules, but they did not see God or know God. And their hearts had become hardened to the God that they were saying that they were following. Let me just say this as clearly as I can. I believe a, self, a, a, a Christian can actually come in here week after week, go to community group week after week, and be completely disconnected from God. Missing God, having hardened their heart to God. Because it is not the activities that make us uh, follow God or connected to God. Yes, those things follow when our heart is after God. But Jesus actually said to the Pharisees on multiple occasions, you worship me with your lips, but what? Your heart, your hearts are far from me. The harshest maybe words that Jesus said will say to anyone are in Matthew 7. When he says, at the end, there'll be people that'll come before me and say, Jesus, look at all the things that we did for you. We did this and that and the other. And he's going to look at him and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Which boils down to the fact that they were, they, those people are people who were in church, who were active, who were doing things, who on the outside even looked like Christians, but who on the inside were far from, far from Christ. I believe Jesus grieves over that today. 
I believe he is sad that there is anyone sitting in this room right now who came in professing Christ, believing that they, uh, may, they are a Christian, but whose heart is not, has no affection for him, who is not really interested in living a life surrendered to him, who is not about take, denying themselves, taking up their cross and trying to follow him, imperfectly as it is, right? We never get that fully right but the person who would come just because it makes them feel better, the person who comes because, well, this is what I'm supposed to do, or I I, I come because this is my community and they kind of support me, but their hearts are far from Christ. Jesus issued a judgment on them because he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word visitation in the Old Testament is used to point to God's coming to his people. So it's, it's used distinctly for that. God's visitation among his people. And he says, you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said, you didn't know that I was coming. You didn't know that I've come, that all the times that I've preached in the temple, that I've taught in the temple, that you've seen me perform miracles and travel throughout the, the land here. You, many of you have come to see me. Many of you have come to, and have heard about me, but you don't understand who I am. You don't understand that this is a unique visitation. You see, Christ had come as God in human form to establish a new kingdom, a new kingdom, um, and to call people into following him. And God had never done that before. Picture verse 42 with Jesus with tears in his eyes. Would that you, what an interesting phrase, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This echoes back in Luke 13, so like six chapters earlier, Jesus cried out about Jerusalem. He goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. But this was the city of God. Literally, Jerusalem is, is throughout scripture pictured as the city of God. Right? Even in the, 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 the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and new earth, there's a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven right? for us. And yet these people, not everyone, but the city itself was full of rebellion and resistance to Christ. The king, was, Jesus, was willing to make peace, but only on his terms. And that's important for us to understand. He goes, you didn't even know, you didn't even know the things that make for peace. You think you had it. You thought that, that a king who would come in and throw off Roman rule would give you peace. You thought that setting up this system of sacrifices in this temple, uh, temple institution that you've, you've created, this system of, of, of making money and of power, you thought that would make peace. That's not peace. I am peace. Verse 43 and 44, he I mean, this is, this is hard to hear for anyone who knows history. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround the city of Jerusalem and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. You see, around 66 AD, the Jewish people were sick and tired of Roman rule and they revolted. They revolted, and very quickly, the Roman Empire set up siege mounds around the the entire city of Jerusalem. And they laid siege to that city for four years. 
And in 70 AD, they broke through. They destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, broke it down, the entire thing. It was a violent time. Thousands of Jewish people uh, died. And Jesus said, in his own way, you could have avoided this. Jesus was pointing to this earthly destruction to, to point to a deeper eternal destruction that we risk if we miss Jesus. If we don't understand the day of visitation, if we don't understand and see that God came down in human form through Jesus and that his death on the cross is not some historical event we, we celebrate uh, on Friday, but a, but a spiritual reality that's still affecting life today in this world. And that his resurrection is not something we celebrate on Sunday as a mystical, spiritual thing that nobody really knows what happened, but we kind of hope there's life at the end. We celebrate that believing his victory is our victory. And he's saying, if you get that, you haven't missed how to make peace. Don't harden your hearts. Jesus wants us to experience this eternal life. More on that next Sunday. I don't want to preach that whole sermon. Um, it's a good one, though. Um, so we see Jesus saddened. The second thing we see Jesus uh, emotionally that happens here in his act and, and how he acts on it is his anger. Secondly, Jesus is angered by consumerism. Look at verse, just two verses, verses 45 and 46. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, it's interesting. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you don't know our four uh, parallel stories, different authors, same story they were telling. It's like watching, uh, watching uh, uh, the news uh, on four different channels cover the same event. Nobody covers it the exact same way. They don't shoot from the same angle with the cameras. They have different uh, spins on it, but it's the same story. And that's what they're doing. One of the interesting things is that only a few events cover all four gospels. They, they all have sort of different uh, flavors, if you will. And this is one of the events. Jesus cleansing the temple is recorded in all four of the gospels. And if you gather all of these accounts together, you get a lot of details. So he made a whip out of cords. Jesus was, was so angry, he went out and found, he looked around and found uh, uh, some cords and he like tied them together to create a whip. He hit people. He threw over the money changers' tables. He threw over the animal sellers' tables. He yelled and he drove them out physically. This is Jesus, right? Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Like, that's the same guy. And why? But the question is why? This is the only account of violence in all four gospels that Jesus committed. Violence that, that, that uh, is at the hands of Christ. So why? Well, to get this, you have to understand the purpose of the temple in the Bible. He said the temple was a place of convergence. The convergence of the presence of God and the people of God. The city was, of Jerusalem was the city of God, but God's presence dwelt among his people through the temple. And in particular, the Holy of Holies inside the temple. Back at the beginning of the Bible, before sin had entered in, Adam and Eve lived in God's presence. They dwelt in God's presence. Not dwelt in, there was a building that they had to go into, but dwelt as in face-to-face, 
walking in the garden together. I, I look forward to seeing what that's like. Right now, that scares me quite a bit, just to be honest. Um, but, but that's how close they were. Then sin entered. But, but this garden, this beautiful, picturesque paradise garden was broken by sin. And, and so man and, and God who had dwelled in the same space could no longer dwell together. God could not allow sinful men and women to live in his presence. So the, the two spheres broke apart. And then under Moses, very early on in the Bible, under Moses, God had uh, Moses begin to build a, a mobile temple called the tabernacle. It was a tent. And this tent was, was beautiful. And it was, uh, there were such vivid, clear descriptions of, of the art and, and how things were to be made. And what it echoes when you start hearing is, oh, there's, you're supposed to do these beautiful uh, plants here and you're supposed to uh, picture fruit here. And what it begins to sound like is the Garden of Eden. And so what the temple has become is this convergent space uh, where God dwells among his people again. And it's only through the sacrifice of the animals and, and all that could, God, could they begin to dwell. And it, so it was through the, the tabernacle and eventually the temple that Solomon built that this convergent space was pictured of, of echoing back to the garden. So when, when Jesus entered the temple and he threw out the money changers, you have to kind of paint the scene in your mind or see the scene. This wasn't this room of people. There were thousands, probably tens of thousands of people in the temple at this point, uh, on the temple mount. Uh, it was Passover. If you remember last week, I talked about this, the, the city that normally is forty or 50,000 people had swollen to maybe 300,000 people. Well, where do they all go? Well, they're all there to worship, so they all go to the temple. Um, so the temple was, was full. You can... Um, Here's a, a, a rendering, should be on the screen here. This is a, a rendering um, that, or actually I think it's a model that was built, um, but, but an attempt to understand basically on the dimensions that we understand and archaeologists have uh, verified. This is the Temple Mount. What you're looking at is a 35-acre uh, mount, and we're not even picturing the whole thing, but it's that whole flat area there. To give you a perspective, a little bit of a perspective on how big this is, that building on the far top left corner, uh, that portico, is not over 900 feet long. So this is huge. It's, it's monstrous. And if you look at the bottom right side, there's a low, low like, um, wall right there. And then you can see kind of another one on the other side of the building, uh, a little bit other side of the temple. That wall, that low wall, and, and I, nobody knows exactly how tall it was. It wasn't as big as the actual walls, but it was, it was uh, there to break up Jews from non-Jews, Jews from Gentiles. And, and the Gentiles could only stay outside of that. So they could go all the way around to the other side, um, up the, the, the portico over there, but they couldn't like get into the actual area where Jews were. Jews could go in. Then there was a court, uh, uh, the further court there was uh, where uh, Jewish women could actually go. And then the furthest court was Jewish men could go there. And then within that further, only the priests could go and, and the holies. And then once you got to the Holy of Holies inside the, the temple, which would have been at the far end of the tall part of the building would have been the Holy of Holies. And that's where God, the Ark of the Covenant was, and God would dwell there. Uh, and only once a year, high priests could go in there. After ma having made sacrifice for their own sin, they could go in there and make sacrifice for the sins of God's people. So imagine this scene. Tens of thousands of people 
on this. Jesus comes in, uh, sees this, and the court of the Gentiles, this whole outer court, was full of hundreds, likely, of, of small booths of people selling animals and people exchanging money. You ask why? It didn't happen normally, but it was Passover and all these people had come. So what happens if you have to travel two weeks uh, on the road to go to Jerusalem for this Passover festival? Well, you're supposed to offer a, a lamb, a spotless lamb. Well, you, you maybe could bring one, but then you've got to care for it, feed it, make sure it doesn't get injured because if it gets injured, you can't offer it. So you'd have to go, but go home and get another one. So what would happen is the, the local religious leaders decided, we'll just, we can sell people an animal to sacrifice there. So they began to do that. And then people also had to pay the temple tax. Uh, that was part of going to uh, the, and sacrificing was to pay the, the, the temple tax. But you couldn't pay the temple tax in foreign money. So you had to exchange the money. So what had happened is in this court here, there were, uh, there were money changers, literally changing money. There were um, animals, little, imagine little uh, pens with, with different animals. And, you know, somebody's got a table out here and it's like, you know, two bucks for a, a pigeon, two, you know, and literally thousands of people uh, doing that, buying and selling. Actually, Josephus, uh, an ancient historian, said in one day during the Passover festival, there were 25,000 lambs bought, uh, um, uh, sold, bought, and uh, sacrificed in the, in the temple. In one day during Passover. So you can imagine that. The, the, uh, and, and they were making a lot of money off of it. One, another historian tells us that a, um, a dove could be bought on the streets outside in Jerusalem somewhere for like four coins. But in this, inside the temple, so that you could go ahead and make an offering, it was going as high as 75. And you thought shopping at the airport was expensive, right? <laughs> like, I mean, this, that, you know, we got like 50% markup. I don't even know what percentage that is, but that's a huge percentage. And, and, and the, the truth is the religious leaders were getting a kickback on all of this. They were, get, they were making money off this. Think about the amount of capital that would flow through the temple, just through the money changers, probably not giving a great rate, and, and the animals being sold for crazy amounts of money. And where was this happening? In the court of the Gentiles, where, the, where people who don't yet know Christ, who did not know God, were supposed to be able to come and pray and hear about God and encounter him. They had literally blocked off this area from the, for the very purpose that God had created it for. And Jesus was angry. Convenience and consumerism had taken over. And don't be too judgy here because it happens all the time to us as well. How often do we opt for what's more convenient? I can lay in my bed and watch Facebook Live today. Don't even have to get up. No one's going to judge me because I'm in my pajamas, right? Um, I, I can make a cup of coffee and, and, and participate, right? I'm not knocking you. You're here. Um, <laughs> but I'm saying like at times there's a temptation. It can be easy to do that. It can be easy to skip out on community group because you just, you know, I've got a little work I could do and some emails. And, and so what we do is we, we end up sliding the priority in, over, uh, of God and, and substituting convenience, and we can come into this space on Sunday, and I hear this language, not, thank God, not hear a lot, but I hear consumeristic language about churches. 
Oh, I like the music. Oh, the preaching's pretty good. I like my community group. I like the building that we meet in. I like, how, I like the, the uh, elders and the staff, and I like the meetings that we have, and I like the studies we do, and I like, and I like, and I like. There's one common word in all of that. I, right? And did, very simple question, did the, did the temple exist for the glory of people or the glory of God? The church does not exist for us to consume and take. God cares where our heart is. Jesus, Jesus did not, was not passive or weak in his response here. Some people say, I've heard people actually argue, well, you know, the truth is this, you know, just the way the Greeks phrase and things like this, you know, is Jesus really didn't like do violence against people. That'd be a sin. So he, you know, he was kind of like, hey guys, like it'd be really super awesome, like cool if you could like consider leaving the temple mount. That would be awesome. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I've actually heard people argue that Jesus didn't use violence. I'm like, why did he make a whip of cords then? What? Like, decoration? Like, what? He was angry. He was righteously angry. There is a good anger. Good anger, right? Some of you have been told, don't ever get angry. angry being angry is a sin. Being angry is not a sin. Being angry... Um, because the world is not operating the way you want it to is a sin. Getting angry and losing your cool because somebody cuts you off in traffic is, is wrong. It's, a, it's a, a misplaced anger. But being angry when you see men, innocent men, women, and children suffering in Ukraine right now, if you don't feel a little bit of anger, like I, I, I'm not sure what's going on. That's a righteous anger. Now, what we do with that can be sin, but, it, but that anger itself is a righteous anger. You see, God gets angry. He's angry what happened to his house. Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. The quote there, my house shall be a house of prayer is from Isaiah, and the full quote is, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. You know, see how often the Jewish people miss this? They missed the point of the temple, the, the outer court. The largest part of the, of the temple was dedicated for people who did not know God to be able to come and hear about God and to encounter God's people. This is what happens when we take the church and we use it for ourselves. We get comfortable with our community group. We get comfortable with our worship. We get comfortable with the way things are operating. Things are good for me. And we've lost the plot. We've lost the mission. We've lost that the church exists as a missionary agency. This is an embassy of Jesus Christ in Brookline. And we are ambassadors to go and represent him. What does it say about us if we just enjoy hanging out at the embassy? You know, my favorite uh, artist is, um, is Van Gogh. I uh, got to go through the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam uh, when I was in seminary. And like, I, I was actually, uh, I was there for a conference and the rest of the folks had left. I stayed a couple extra days just to tour around the city. And I spent 
a lot of hours just there and then on the grounds itself around it. And, um, you know, his most famous uh, painting is of his um, doctor. It's actually the most expensive painting um, is a portrait of his doctor. In 1990, it sold for $82.5 million, roughly $160 million today, they say. Uh, they don't, what's funny is they don't know what's actually happened to it. <laughs> they kind of lost track in 2018 or 2019. They haven't been able to locate it. Um, <laughs> that's kind of weird. But, uh, but imagine you're sitting there watching this painting being sold and you, you, you understand who Van Gogh was. You, you understood the impact he had. You understood the value of this piece of art. And as soon as the, the person finishes buying it, they walk up with a, uh, a box cutter and a spray paint and they just slash and spray. You're like, there would be a, wouldn't there not be a sickening feeling enter your heart and probably some anger? And that's good anger because honestly, I don't think you own a painting like that. You're a steward of it because it is so artistically significant that you're only a steward and you lost the point of the painting. Why Van Gogh even painted it? And that's exactly what they had done with the temple. And that's what can happen to the church. I would say this today for us to apply for us. Um, we, we need to be careful. Only we can examine our hearts because the truth is I can look at you on the outside and say, well, no, it's, he, he seems really committed to, the, to Christ or she really seems committed to Christ. But it can be, you're just going through the motions because of what you're getting out of it. And you're kind of like, this is pretty good for me. I'm okay with that. But your heart's not really for Christ and the things of Christ. You're not asking Christ, how do you want to use me in my life? How do you want to use me in my workplace? How do you want to use me in my town, my, my neighborhood, my apartment building? How do you want to work through me? Because one of the beautiful things is the reason Jesus was actually okay with the temple being torn down was number one, he was already the temple in, in human form. In, back in John chapter one, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is literally from the Hebrew word tabernacle. It's, it's, it's the verb tabernacled. <laughs> so God came and pitched his tent, built his temple on some legs and walked around among us. But then what, what's beautiful is after the resurrection, again, not gonna get there too much this week. I wanna, I'm ready to roll. But uh, after that, Jesus now dwells in his people. And you know what uh, 1 Corinthians tells us? We are now the temple of God through the Holy Spirit. And how much better is that? This is God's ultimate plan. Not that there would be a building where God dwells, but there would be a people where God dwells. Think about how unstoppable that kingdom is. There is no building you can tear down to end Christianity. There is no, there is no uh, religious spot that if it's destroyed, we're done. It's not wrapped up in earthly wealth. It's not wrapped up in any earthly facility or space. It is in a people. And that's why the kingdom of God can spread around the globe like it does. And it's a picture of that eternal kingdom that we get to be a part of. Let me ask you just a really honest, blunt question. Have you hijacked the temple for yourself? Holy Week is a great time for us to recommit ourselves, right? The gospel slow down. Let's, let's be intentional this week. Let me suggest a, a, a few quick ways and I'll close this in prayer. One, 
Confess. Use this week to confess that you have hijacked the temple. And when it comes down to it, you like some Jesus in your life, but, but you don't yet, you, you have not thought often what the temple is for, that is for God and for others. Be intentional this week with your time. Slow down, put your phone away, pray, read, read the gospel. Pick up where I am today at the end of chapter 19. Read slowly, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Next week, we're in 24. It's the resurrection. What a great week to just slow down and take in the gospel. Take time to worship. Proper worship happens when we have proper sight of who Jesus is. Open your hands and look out this week with the heart of Jesus. Here's a phrase for you to repeat to yourself. My life does not belong to me. My life does not belong to me. You say that to yourself 500 times this week. (laughs) And look for how Jesus wants to use you in the people, circumstances around you. I promise you, I promise you, God has and will put people in front of you this week that he wants you to represent him to. And I'm not, that's not always sharing the gospel message. It might be. Sometimes it's just loving an unlovable person. Somebody, sometimes it's just meeting somebody in their brokenness and their sadness. Sometimes it's just being a listening ear. Sometimes it's encouraging someone. Sometimes it's coming along and helping someone. But we need the eyes of Christ because that's what he wants to do with his temple this week. And then come Friday night with a heart for pure and undefiled worship of our crucified Savior. Let your heart dwell on that and what he's done. And then next Sunday, we're going to party. It's great. We already know the story, right? How great is that? We know the end that, that, that he rose. And so next Sunday, like just pray. Just pray and prepare yourself to come. We're going to prepare ourselves now to take communion. And I realize across the room, there's a a range of emotions. Maybe you came in here here today feeling really sad. You're just in a tough spot in your life. Don't feel any shame over that. I would say Jesus, Jesus wants you to know he sees you today. He sees you. He was sad. He's wept. And he wants to invite you in to be known and loved today through communion. Maybe you realize you've been hijacking the temple. Communion is a way to consecrate, to set yourself apart again, to to rededicate yourself to Christ. Taking the bread as the representative of the body of Christ and drinking the, the cup as the symbol of the blood of Christ reminds you that he's already bought this temple. And he is inviting you to repent today and experience grace afresh and anew. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you stand with Christ uh, today, um, communion's not, not for you. It's, it's the one part of the service we, you can't participate in or we ask you not to. It's, um, it's for those who have taken that step of faith. We're excited you're here. I know it takes a lot of faith to even come to a church if you're not a Christian because it can feel like you're an outsider. But let me just encourage you today. I believe you're here on purpose. I don't believe one person is sitting in this room by accident. That God wants to meet you today. And so through this next song, you can pray. Through this next song, you can sing. Maybe you want to grab that connection card and just write a short prayer request on the back and drop that in the offering basket later and I will pray for you. I'll follow up with you. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray. 
when we're done, then over the next song, if you're a follower of Christ, um, take your time, no rush. Take your time to pray, reflect, repent, um, and then make your way towards the front and out this side door here. We have to take communion out in the hallway if you're new um, because there's no food or drink in here and then just make your way back in through the back door. Um, But again, take your time. There's no rush. Let's pray. What a picture we have of you today, Jesus, of a weeping Savior. And we know that your tears over Jerusalem were just a glimpse of the tears you would shed on the cross. You didn't weep because you were helpless. You were sad, but you were going to do something about it. We thank you today that you did not leave us in our ignorance and our hardness of heart. But through the cross, you break open. You break through. You open our eyes. And I pray today that you would do that in our midst. Do that in me. Help me to see you more clearly. Help me to consecrate this temple. Help each of us to, to lay aside the pull of consumerism and convenience over a devoted heart to you. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember what you've done and look forward to the day we will see you again. In your name we pray.